Cistercian bells have been ringing out over Cistercian farmland since 1098, across fields formed and farmed by Cistercian monks. It was the Cistercians more than any other force that cleared the forest, drained the fens and created Europe's farmland. In 1998, the Cistercians celebrated 900 years of prayer and farming. The Cistercian Abbey in Ross Grey is a relative newcomer. The bursar, Father Lawrence, traces its history. It was a foundation uh, of monks from Mount Mellory in County Waterford. And the property was offered to them by Arthur Moore, who was uh, a landlord in South Tipperary, in, near Tipperary town. Uh, Moorsforth was the name of, of the locality. And Arthur uh, offered Mount Mellory a, a foundation, and he bought this property with the idea of settling a, a monastery of, of Cistercian monks here. And that was 1878. And he uh, he paid the 10,000, and the monks had raised the other five. And, of course, the monks had no money, you told me. Uh, they had no money. Well, first of all, they got a, the very first uh, account book here. We, we have it still in, uh, in our possession. Uh, and the very first entry in, in it is a donation from the abbot of Mount Mellory, £500. And that was the 19th of March, 1878. And the second one is a loan from the abbot of Mount Mellory, £1,000. Oh, don't tell Mount Mellory that we haven't paid back that yet. <laughs> How many monks arrived here? Uh, something over 34, 35 monks uh, came from Mellory originally. Um, they they came, some by train, I think, to Templemore and in carriage from Templemore over here. Uh, they came here in 1878 and uh, they started building the church in 1879 it was opened to the public in 1881, just two years of building. And the stone was all quarried on the land here itself. Uh, limestone, a very hard limestone. So there, there was, it was an extraordinary amount of work. In fact, as religious houses that one can see around about here and in Britain and in various other places, I mean, it is, it is splendid. It, it stands up to anything that was built in medieval times when the church was very rich. Well, it was certainly built on the traditional Cistercian lines, uh, if you're in Holy Cross or Jerr Point or any of the great ones in, in England, like um, Revo or Fountains, uh, the whole setup is exactly as we have it here. The, the, the church facing east on, on the north side of the, of the quadrangle, the monastery built round this quadrangle, the uh, chapter house uh, facing east, the um, refectory facing south, and where we are now, the, the bursar's quarters uh, and the, the, the business end of, of the house uh, facing west. Uh, that, that's the, pretty well the layout of all, all Cistercian monasteries. In the early time, the early uh, stages of the order, they founded uh, very hard in the early days of Seto, which is our mother house. We we're called Cistercians because of Seto. And uh, th that monastery was founded uh, 900 years ago, this month actually. And here we are, 900 years later, uh, carrying on the same tradition. Now, then St. Bernard entered in, in, in uh, Clairvaux, in Setaw, and he, um, it was, he was the, the genius. He, he wasn't the founder of the order, but he was the genius. And uh, he was the man who uh, um, led the expansion of the order. And uh, he made the, f the first foundation in Ireland, in Mellifont. It was he and St. Malachy, who was the Archbishop of Armagh, was responsible for bringing the Cistercians to Ireland. At the height of the Order's prominence, how many houses were there in Ireland, approximately? 
we had 36, I think it was, houses, Cistercian houses in Ireland uh, altogether. Now, Ross Gray in its own time, of course, has carried on the tradition well, of setting it, up new communities. That's quite true, that's quite true, Joe. Uh, in 1946, we made our first foundation uh, to a place called Nunra in Scotland, near, near Edinburgh in Scotland. Uh, 35 monks, I think, went from here to, to Edinburgh to found that, that monastery just immediately after the war. And then in 1954, uh, we made another foundation in Australia, near, near Melbourne, Tarawara Abbey. And uh, our third foundation is Moon, County Kildare. And of course it was by this sort of process of, of hiving off parts of communities and setting up new monasteries that the, that the order really dominated the landscape of Europe. <laughs> well, that's true, I suppose. Uh, and um, uh, St Bernard was the one that's, that's set that afire, as I mentioned. But uh, we spread right around the then-known world, as it was. Uh, we have, uh, at present now, we have monasteries all over the world, uh, in, in certainly every continent, and uh, all the new countries, Africa and uh, Asia. Uh, the biggest convent of nuns we have in the order is in Japan, if you don't mind. A tremendous history of building, and that has gone on in Rosgrey and is still going on. Yes, that's true. Uh, as I mentioned the church, uh, that was the first building. But then they never stopped building, really, after that, and it was all done in stone. They, uh, the whole monastic quadrangle... And the farmyard, which is a beautiful um, building too, it's, it's again, it's a quadrangle. Uh, not exactly suitable for modern-day farming, but uh, beautiful buildings, absolutely magnificent buildings. Now, you're in charge of the finance. Uh, in lay terms, I suppose you're the financial controller. In religious terms, you're the bursar. That's right. Uh, to say financial controller has given me a lovely title. I think the fellow who keeps the bank manager quiet might be nearer to it. Uh, and you inherited your instructions from uh, from the rule of St. Benedict. That's right. We, we, St. Benedict wrote this rule for monks, which we follow as, as a principle. We, we don't follow it literally, but it's, it's our main uh, principle of monastic living. And he has a whole chapter on, on what we call the borser today. He calls him the cellarer. Uh, I'll read just a, a little bit for you here now. As cellarer of the monastery, there should be... Uh, chosen from the community, someone who is wise, mature in conduct, temperate, not an excessive eater, not proud and excitable, offensive, dilatory or wasteful, but God-fearing. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> and like a father to the whole community. He will take care of everything, but do nothing without an order from the abbot. Let him keep to his orders. Well, is that a description of the bursar that I'm talking to now? Well, humility was another great aspect of Benedict's teaching, and I daren't pass any comment uh, because of that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But you are running a business, and uh, you're running a business in a long tradition of Cistercian bursars. The monastery is a business, and quite a big business. Well, that's true, uh, Joseph. We, we, um, the farm is our main source of income. Uh, we have quite a large farm, and uh, it, we used to have mixed farming in the old times. Nowadays, it's confined to uh, the, the, the um, dairying and beef. Now, one core value you always had here was that work is prayer. Yes. Uh, St. Benedict had the three real values in the life. Uh, 
the work of God, the special kind of meditative reading, which you call Lectio Divina, and the Opus Manum, the work of the hands. And uh, work was a very important part of his concept of a monk's life. Uh, a monk has to work for his living. He has to uh, share in the the common lot of all humankind. Now we're at a, a feature of the monastery grounds here, a series of waterfalls along a fairly significant stream uh, falling away and running down into the Little Brosna. It was created by our brother Ignatius about 40 years ago, I'd say, or maybe 50. He planned the whole thing himself and uh, built it himself with some help and we have maintained it ever since. He's still with us, he's in his 90s now. It is a tremendous attraction. You have to go back into the church now, it's just coming on to the evening and what is that for? Vespers, Vespers the evening, uh, or the evening prayer of, of, of the church and a very important part of our, our prayer day. Father Kieran, I'm talking to you in a monastery garden, a fitting place for you to be because uh, of the life you had before you came in here. One of the greatest uh, advantages I had was to be reared on a farm in the country. I always thank God for that because I was reared up in the north, South Armagh, and one of the first things I remember was seeing two newborn lambs under a, under a scot, though we didn't call them a scot in the north, they were under a hawthorn bush on the side of a drumlin. But I can remember, too, uh, seeing the wind uh, making waves with the hay in the, on the drumlins. But the best sight of all was a, a, to see a, a field of flax in blue bough, as the farmer said, in small blue blossoms on beautiful olive green leaves. It's the most beautiful sight I've ever seen. What we're at at the moment here is pruning the apple trees. Uh, it's cheaper to buy fruit, buy apple, even apples, than to pay for all the spraying and the fertilising and pruning and everything else. So we just let them grow naturally. Uh, we don't fertilise them, we don't spray them, but we prune them. The trees are very well looked after, obviously. Very old trees, I suspect. Oh, very old trees. But they were very well, they were very well chosen. And uh, you notice that they're, plant, they're, they're planted, no matter what way you look at them, they're, they're in, in lines. And they were very well trained. They're all uh, like a cup or a chalice. So the maximum light and maximum air for, for the branches. And we try to retain that structure as we prune them. Now, looking around us here in the garden now, it's certainly a very peaceful site. A monastery garden is well known as being a very peaceful place. It, it certainly is. It is a, it is a, it's a, a fortress of paradise. In, many, in, in spring, when, at this time of the year, when the birds are singing and when the trees are coming into blossom, and later when the apples come into uh, are ripening the colours uh, and even when you're pruning the apples in, in winter when it's cold and frosty 
Uh, but there's still an atmosphere that uh, makes it a very pleasant place to work. The atmosphere is, is very conducive to prayer. There's no doubt about that. Now, walking along a high wall and looking at fruit trees growing along it in, in, in very carefully planned form. Uh, I'm not sure if it was Father Declan who planted these, but certainly Father Declan was uh, in charge of the garden here when I came in in 1948. And he was a tremendous uh, gardener, great green fingers. Uh, he, 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 he could, uh, everything he grafted was sure to take. But I'm, he had a lot to do, I would say, with training these uh, pear trees against the wall, as, as uh, some of them as fan trees and some with parallel branches. And these are all pears? These are all pear trees. And a funny thing about it, in, a, in, a, in that lower wall down there, there's a calf house at the back of that. And those always produce pears because they're ne- they're always the, the heat of the calves means that the frost doesn't kill them, doesn't kill the, the the blossoms. Well, these ones here, there was an old uh, there was an old uh, potato straw bed back of those, and they're much colder. And very often these are killed by the frost. So it's the, the, having the calf house at the back of those pears. It's there's an advantage to both. So it's one part of agriculture uh, cooperating with another. <laughs> very much so. It's a splendid garden, not because it has hundreds of flower beds or anything like that, just mostly because of its forms, its shapes. Uh, and that was typical of Cistercians. They're, they're, they're buildings, not because of the ornament, but, but, but the, 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 the harmony between the different elements in it. That's probably what gives it its beauty, but it is certainly a, a place of prayer. Father Peter Garvey, take me back 900 years now, because that's an area that you've been studying. Well, I suppose we should, we should say something first of all about the uh, fact that the Cistercians originally came from the Benedictine uh, rule, that when the original group of monks left the monastery of Molaim in France to found the Cistercian order, they, they did so quite deliberately in order to live the rule of St. Benedict more fully. To some extent, you see, Benedict uh, was a man that brought all the monastic traditions and rules together in the 6th century and what he put down on paper and the kind of rule and monastery he established became the norm for all subsequent uh, monasteries in the western world and therefore all uh, monasteries followed his rule from 800 on but the Cistercians felt in that time and in the end of the 11th century in 1098 those, that little group of men in Molay felt this wasn't good enough and that particularly that it was too ornate and that they were too rich and uh, that in general they didn't live out the rule as Benedict intended it to. So they moved? Yes, after a a lot of discussion and a lot of dissension really, because there was quite a split in the community about it, uh, 21 of them set out for this wooden area in Burgundy near Dijon and established the monastery there in Citeaux. And the order went from success to success in the most extraordinary way. Yes, there was an incredible uh, increase during the, the, the 12th century. Uh, by, by the end of the 12th century, there were 700 monasteries uh, throughout Europe. And that period lasted for, for quite a time? Yes, I'd say up to uh, about 12, 1250. But from 1250 on, we can definitely see a decline in the in the order, both in the in the number of monks joining the order, uh, but maybe more importantly in the quality of their life, uh, they began to become in, involved 
uh, too involved in material things and allowed and began to become wealthy and particularly the abbots of the order began to have um, great wealth and retinues and going on long journeys and entertaining guests and all that sort of thing. And that, of course, was based on the, on the wealth of the monasteries, um, which, which we would have to acknowledge were very wealthy and which we should have to maybe say something about because from the beginning, you see, the Cistercians decided that they couldn't uh, fulfill the full obligations of being monks, namely to praise God seven or eight times a day and uh, do all their spiritual reading and their prayer and at the same time run their farms and their enterprises, their industrial enterprises. And so they decided at a very early stage to engage men who would make vows in the community but who wouldn't be monks and therefore would be completely free to give all their time and attention to the farms and uh, develop them in that way. And these were the lay brothers? These were the lay brothers. Not only were they an, uh, a crucial element in the, the communities, but they were also by far the bigger group in the communities because a lot of the, the distinction between the monks and the lay brothers was based on the society as it was at the time. But these were the people who did the physical work within the whole monastic system? Exactly. And they would also be the people who would administer the property. It's, it's hard to imagine in our times a monastery uh, in, in northern Germany in the 14th century had uh, 84,000 acres of land. And you can just imagine the, the amount of administration that that must have entailed, uh, including all the villages which were situated within that area. And they would all belong to the, to the monks and the monks would be providing for them and organising the work and so on. Now, we regard the Cistercians, and I've always regarded the Cistercians as the farming monks, but they were more than that. They were, they were. Now, primarily, it was certainly farming, and the income and the capacity to live by all the monasteries was primarily based on farming, but they did uh, diverge into a whole lot of other areas. For example, uh, vineyards, of course, and, and France and Germany initially were very popular in Spain, and um, some of the best wines in that period were uh, monastic wines. And of course Burgundy, where Cito was formed, is one of the hearts of the wine-growing world. But then they would have branched into a lot of industries too. And the earliest known uh, mining industries now in, in the Ruhr Valley were monastic mines, some of whom were, were Cistercian. And I suppose another area which would be primarily farming would be the wool trade. And uh, that in, in England, and to a lesser extent in Ireland, the whole wool trade was uh, directed and controlled by the Cistercian monks. And then what happened? Well, certainly in Northern Europe, what happened was the Reformation. The, the Reformation uh, came in the 16th century and effectively wiped out all the monasteries right across the north of Europe. That includes Ireland, England, uh, Germany, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and parts of um, Austria. And the uh, second uh, event, major historical event, which came then was the French Revolution, and that effectively wiped out all the monasteries in France. And uh, that took centuries then to change. It was, two, it was centuries before that changed into the modern times, really. Now, 
the monastery here has always had a comfortable and, and affectionate relationship, I would say, with the people around it, with the town of Ross Grey and with the farming people around the countryside. And I see some of those people worrying about the future of the monastery and saying, will it be here in 50 years? Yes. And uh, first of all, it's absolutely true what you say. Uh, there's an extraordinary bond between the local communities around here and the monastery in the way they come to the to the masses on Sunday and um, in the way that generations of families have worked in the on the farm and in various parts of the monastery. And their concern is absolutely well-founded, Joe, because they can see that um, the community is ageing and... Um, there aren't that many young men, uh, and therefore they ha they're, they're realists, uh, and therefore their concern is well-founded. Uh, but nevertheless, from, uh, from my experience, as I say, of the people who come here desiring um, a prayer life, I don't see any reason why the monastery shouldn't uh, provide the locus for that in the years ahead. the souls of all the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Jesus, send your spirit to bless this table. Give us joy in knowing the love in which we live and move and have our being forever and ever. Amen. Father Niebuhr, I notice you may be the prior, but today you're the waiter. Right. Serve the ref. We do this by the week. Each one in the community gets the job for one week at a time, and uh, he's helped by another man. So you're wheeling in their lunch to them and they're having potatoes, cabbage, uh, pasta and beans. Right, that's it. No meat. Not bad, and um, only people who are sick or in need of it get meat, but if they, if they do, they, they get it. That's okay, but most of the community don't. Taken you uh, about ten minutes, Father Anthony. That's a farmer's lunch time in the summer, all right. Well, that's enough of a day like today, Joe. Uh, we'll make up for it some other time, you know. Okay, you're <laughs> off again now. Off again, out to the silage. Yeah. Still enough people in the community to make it a, a very real community, especially at mealtime like this. 
Right, yes. We have a total of about, I think about 32 people in the house. And, um, ah, well, between the people engaged in the school and the guest house, and we'd have, I suppose, you'd have 26 or 7 here in the refectory at uh, d dinner each day. We're just after the lunch. We're gone into the church, and you have another office now after right. lunch. Right, the office of known, as we call it, the ninth hour, which which usually follows the midday meal with us, and uh, just is very short again, like the former office. It lasts only about ten minutes or so. Brother John, where are you bringing me? Well, now we're just after coming out of the prayers and out of the office of known. So I lead you over to the bakery now. And the I'll most important place. Oh, oh it, it is. It's a very, very important place, especially here in Ross because I tell you why many people that come to the bakery and visit the bakery, I say to them, by the way, I say, this is the best playing place in the monastery, in, in spite of the the size of the size the little size that it is and towards the size of the monastery oh and they say how is that brother oh it's a this is where we make all the dough here <laughs> okay oh a lovely sort of flowery bakery smell no i've seen the bread before but uh, i've never been where the bread was produced perkins patent steam oven yes a.m. Perkins and Sun Limited, yes. uh, Regent Square, London. A very old oven, I suspect. Oh, it is. It's just 102 years old now this year. Yes, a steam oven. And the water that, that was hermetically sealed into that 102 years ago, just said about a litre of water in each tube, still remains in it today. Yeah. And do you keep the fire going the whole time, or oh, is there a bake, is there oh, a bake oh, on it's now? It's on morning, noon and night. All the year round, actually. So how many loaves of bread can you bake in there at the same time? No, that at all, at least approximately 70, 80, 70 to 80 loaves of bread. We'd better close the oven again because you can't let it, uh, you can't let it cool. What makes your bread so famous? Well, now, for example, there's nobody, not one in Ireland can bake that kind of bread, not even the bakeries themselves, unless they were trained here to do it. And that's why it was always known as the famous Ross Grey bread. Well, now, Father Nevard, we've just come in from the courtyard. We're walking up granite steps with uh, tremendously well-made and very solid banisters and into a long corridor. That's not the correct right. name for it. The cloister. Mm -hmm. Cloisters run the usual shape of a monastery is that they run four square with the church three cloisters each forming one side of a square more or less equal length about 200 feet and the church forming the fourth side of the square so this corridor in fact is is a cloister right you can see the arches is very wide about 12 feet wide i suppose and the arches supporting it of course traditional gothic arches mm of the uh, classic Cistercian tradition. And what is the purpose of the cloister other than the fact that it's a, a corridor? 
Well, there really are two other purposes. One is that, as you'll see over, we have what we call the reading cloister, which is equipped with seats for reading, and occasionally we have reading in common in that cloister. And the other is that it's somewhere for the monks to walk in bad weather, Mm. Uh, just walking up and down in silence, reading, reflecting, and it's a bit more than just a utilitarian corridor linking two parts of the house, in other words. And sometimes one side of it is open is to open, the air, but exactly, not in this case. Not in this climate. Our climate doesn't lend itself to that. But in, on the continent of Europe and in, uh, say, the United States and warmer countries, this is delightful, really, to have an open-air space inside the house, which... Uh, Gives great, it gives great airiness and great um, a freshness to the whole atmosphere, you know. Well, it's a very monumental staircase, as you can see. And now we're at the library door. And into the library. A lovely library, actually, and again, yeah, uh, yeah. very monastic looking, a lot of timber work, and a gallery running right round. Right. And. Um, a very good collection of books. It's become very expensive, of course, to maintain a library. Books are so expensive nowadays, and there is so much coming out, really in every field, you know. What purpose does a library in a Cistercian monastery serve? Well, I would say, first of all, a monastery should be distinguished for learning. Any monastery. I think it should be distinguished for three things. One is prayer, second is work, and the third is learning. Mm. And the um, cultivation of silence in one's life is clearly very important. But Father Anthony, you're the farmer. That's right, You're John. very busy like a lot of farmers today. Busy today because of the fine day. They're very few and far between this year, Joe. But uh, it's great when they come. You can take advantage of it. You have to drop everything and uh, out you get. So here we are, uh, bailing silage today. Good silage is going to be a bit short this year. Very short. A lot of bad silage made because of the rain. But what can farmers do? They've got to cut it and uh, that, that, was the, that was it. We were fortunate here that we, didn't have a, we had a lot of silage left over from the winter. We're in the um, winter. You know, we outwinter the cows a lot, so we saved a lot of silage that way. You can see a shed down there below where I keep all the springing cows that it's out in the woods. And uh, because they're out, they don't eat near as much silage. Well, you're a very busy man. I think I'd better leave you to get on with it. Ah, sure. It's, we have to do it when the day is fine, John. <laughs> Dom Colum O'Toole, with you now in a rather large office, as is fitting for an abbot, of course. Apart from having a large office, what does it mean to be an abbot? To take a long time to answer that question because you'd really want to read the whole of the rule of St. Benedict to see the position that he gives the abbot in the rule. Well, the abbot is certainly the boss. He's the head of the, of the family of the house. Uh, that's true, yeah. yeah and uh, you mentioned a few minutes ago that he's the chief executive. Uh, strange enough, I don't look upon myself as the chief executive. I would look upon myself more as more or less uh, like the father of a family because the bursar would be the one who looks after the uh, 
material side of the house. Uh, but I, ultimately, I would be responsible if something went wrong. I would have to take responsibility for it. But uh, the, in the day-to-day running of the house, uh, the, the abbot is the one that's available for the monks that's uh, there to talk to them, to meet people in their, with their uh, joys and their sorrows. The, the, the abbot is much more a father than, than a chief executive. Are you an autocrat or a democrat? Is an abbot an autocrat or a democrat? Well, I hope I'm neither, because I'm not supposed to be an autocrat. I'm not supposed to be a democrat. Um, monasteries, and I suppose the church in general, w- w- would say that they're not, we're not meant to be democrats. The, the, the structures in the church are not they're, not, they're not, they're not democratic as such. Uh, certainly, I would hope I'm not a, an autocrat. Well, I remember abbots in Ross Grey and they would have a very large ring, they'd have a crozier and a mitre. Uh, I'd have to say to you that they looked a lot like abbots and I'm afraid you just look like a Cistercian. That's a compliment to me. (laughs) (laughs) It it shows that the times have changed. Can I interrupt you for a minute? Now, Brother Columban, down in the sawmills, in the workshop, you've been working on a very attractive piece of timber. You're actually in the process of making a board, I think. Yeah, he's straightened up a piece of board for to cut smaller pieces out of it, you know. I take shapes out of that. You're a very skilled woodworker, and in fact you have been involved in all the, the woodworking in the church, in the choir, and, and all around the monastery, in fact. The last 40 years. Say 50 years, really. Tell me about the poem. The poem. I think oh, I, should, no. I should never see. A poem as lovely as a tree. Yes. A tree that looks at God all day and lifts her leaf yams to pray. Well, that's not the half of it. We get timber here, and maybe it's a couple of hundred years old often. The bigger trees, like pitch pine and that. And every time you take a shaving out, you have a lovely pattern constantly changing. You've also the smell, even it's encased in the wood, even though it might be hundreds of years of age. It seems to me that you've had a very happy life. It seems to me that your colleagues here have a very happy life. It didn't come from money and it didn't come from good food and it didn't come from relaxation. What did it come from? The Lord, of course. <laughs> I see you think. You couldn't be happy here without the Lord. You wouldn't stick it without him. Father Anthony standing on the bridge, the bridge over the Little Brasna, and the cows coming over the bridge now, on their way in to be milked. Uh, you were responsible for these cows, of course. Yes, Joe, that's, uh, that's my job, looking after about 200 cows. So there they're going in now, and they're milked at a quarter to four in the... Well, they're going in at a quarter to four in the afternoon. What time yes, will they be milked in the morning? About four we milk now in the evening, and uh, roughly um, around half six in the morning. Again, so that's the way we work it. It, it's, it works out pretty well that way. 
we found uh, find that those times suit us. The, you know, uh, our prayer life is priority. You see, so the the work has to revolve around the prayer life, and uh, that's it, it. Works out good. How does farming fit in with the routine of Cistercianism? Well, you can fit it in very well, you know, Joe. You, you just have to um, change a few things. Like, uh, our, our, our farmers think now maybe we make the cows very early in the evening. Uh, they wouldn't be only having their afternoon tea now, probably. And maybe make it uh, maybe half five, six o'clock. Uh, that's what we did at home when I was, before I ever came here. But uh, you just uh, change things a little bit. You make it a bit earlier in the morning and uh, earlier in the evening, and it, it, it works out very well. Well, you're up very early in the morning anyway. At what time? Well, I'm up around 10 to 4, Joe, every morning, so uh, it is no bother to me. Stepping onto the bridge now and looking down into the Little Brasner River. That's right, Joe. It's lovely to come out here sometimes, just stop at the bridge and and uh, look at the, the water passing by. The water, you know, something in water is something uh, uh, very refreshing in water. It does something for your mind just to see water pass under the bridge down there. I often talk to farmers who are given out about money and that they don't get enough money out of the job. You're a farmer and you work hard and you don't get a penny at all because you have a vow of poverty. Would you believe it, Joe? I've been on the cows now for about 20 years and I've never yet seen a milk check. <laughs> I don't know what a milkshake looks like <laughs> Maybe if you saw it you'd be over the wall <laughs> Maybe that's why they don't give them to me all right. <laughs> How much has the world changed during your time here? What do you notice when you go back out again? You were down with your relatives in Kerry recently I was, there's a big shift in, um, from the farm point of view anyway uh, Just to give you one um, what, like an example now uh, where I come from, I live in a by road, you see, and there are about um, when I left home 30 years ago, there were 15 farmers in that road uh, supplying milk to the creamery, and they were all more or less small farmers, you know. And uh, at the moment now, there are five, there are five left. Did you know much about Cistercians <coughs> before you came in? Nothing at all, Joe. Nothing at all. And I didn't even know about Ross Gray having a Cistercian house here until I um, got a, got news of it in some pamphlet I was reading about Cistercians and uh, the only thing we associated with Ross was, was the old cow factory that was here years ago. If we had an old cow at home she had long horns, we said she was an old Ross Grey. <laughs> what is it or what was it about Cistercian life that attracted you? Very simple sort of life. Very simple. Um, monks here I thought were very ordinary sort of people. Um, very close to the soil, very close to nature. Um, obviously it was a tough life in many ways, you know. Um, you can't say getting up in the morning at four o'clock is, is uh, the easiest sort of way to spend your life, and, and uh, it never get, really gets easy. You know, you, you might say you get used to it. You get used to it to a certain extent, but uh, when you're at home for a couple of weeks and you're getting up at half past eight, you come back again and you can never afford, and you realise <laughs> it's a tough life. You know. Into the dairy now, a huge tank, of course. That's right, Joe. It's about uh, two thousand three hundred gallons that holds. I have seen that oh, tank overflow at times before the court has, you know, were strictly enforced. But uh, in recent times, it hasn't overflowed for a good while. <laughs> if you didn't have a dairy herd here, it would be difficult for the farm to be viable. I'd say at the moment, Joe, we wouldn't be able to carry on without the dairy herd, you know, because uh, for, since the BAC hit the, the beef the sector, um, our, our income from beef is, is, is almost negligible. Work as prayer. 
all work work can be work can be prayer and work is prayer Joe very much so it's it's uh, you know I don't know when you're when you just walk the land there and I often leave the old tractor beside me there and just walk the land and I don't know there's something in in the soil that you're just so close to nature and that that contact with with nature and uh, uh, for instance yesterday now I just walked all the fields there yesterday just walked the whole lot of them and uh, it took me a couple of hours to get around but uh, it was it was all I don't know it was something spiritual about it so um, lovely experience. Father Anthony Finnegan, choir master, tell me about the importance of sung offices. Very important in our life, Joe, because we have the office seven times a day in choir, and we have a community mass every day, and there is singing involved in every office and in the Mass. The Cistercians had nothing only Gregorian chant in their, in their office. The entire office, the entire Mass was Latin language and Gregorian chant. And it was absolutely uniform throughout the order. No matter where you went in the order, in, on the five continents, you had the same liturgical books, the same office, and I could go into a, a monastery in France, Germany, America, and it would be the same office as here in Roscrae, in Latin. Now, that f- lasted until Vatican II, and then come Vatican II, um, the vernacular came into the liturgy, and... Um, the Gregorian got almost pushed out. But is the pushing out of Gregorian inevitable if you bring in the vernacular? I, I don't think so. I think I think they could be mixed. I think they could be mixed. You could have um, there there's room for both. You don't have to have you don't have to have the office all vernacular or all Latin. You can mix them. The Gregorian music sounding and re-echoing in the church has a rightness about it and seems to have a particular rightness about the monastic church. It's completely at home in the monastic church. 